Good morning and Merry Christmas. It's Christmas Sunday. Is it a little different this year? It's, it just seems a little different. It's like at our house anyways, all the plannings and stuff are not really happening. So, But we remember the birth of our Lord and Savior. Uh, let's look at our announcements. Uh, again, of course, uh, offering envelopes in the offering box. I'm so steamed up, I can't read, sorry. Andrea's number, days of praise, as, long, as well as the Acts and Facts are here, so make use of those. Acts and Facts looks like this, this month. Looks like uh, jellyfish or so. 50 years of creation research, 1970 to 2020. Uh, when you leave the church today, um, take a moment, and if you will, on the helps board, uh, update the birthday and anniversaries. Um, again, a special thank you to all that came out and decorated the church. It's beautiful. We are in need of someone to pick up the church mail, and that would be weekly at the Metamora Post Office. Uh, if you're interested, you can see Terry. And then um, I think most of us got an update on Clara May uh, on our phones, but I'll read it. Um, as of today, Clara May is in the ICU. She has bowel obstruction, blood pressure low, blood sugar low, and um, has had no communication with the doctors or staff. So we want to keep Clara May in our prayers. She's having a, a real struggle. I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the issues are, but she's ill. All right, have I missed anything? Our scripture for meditation comes from Genesis, the 24th chapter. Read verses 10 through 21, page 34.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Dan, can I ask you to open for us today? You take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 155, 155 in the brown.
George, your hand was going up last week. Did you have the same hymn from last week? Did you have one? Last week you were beat by the kids. So I thought I'd call on you first because your hand was up last week for a Christmas hymn. George, I said, I said George, yeah, it was George. George, George got beat by Andrew last week. <laughs> he doesn't remember. Okay, then, yeah, yeah, last Sunday while we were in service. What child is this? Okay. What number? It's in the red. Pardon? 137 in the red. It's in both. The red has more verses, though, more than likely. And better verses. Number 213. 213 in the red. 2.13.
scripture reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel. The first chapter we'll be reading verses 18 through 25. That's page 1497. If you'll stand, we'll read together. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 131, 131.
seated. Our scripture text is Matthew chapter 1. Last Sunday we began our Christmas series entitled Thy Kingdom Come. We consider the pedigree of the promised king. What we discovered is that even though we have an aversion to kings and monarchs, Jesus, God's son, has a royal pedigree, and like it or not, his rule over us is a monarchy, not a democracy. Jesus is the king whose word is law and whose will is irrefutable and unimpeachable. We consider the constituency of Jesus' kingdom. In other words, who are the people over whom he rules? Number one, we listed Judah and all the tribal clans of Israel, yes. Even though for now most of them have not acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah, nor have they bowed the knee to his authority, but that's coming. You say, where do you find that? Read Romans 11, you'll... See it all there. There are listed women which are unheard of in Oriental genealogies. Some like Tamar and Rahab were sexually exploited. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a partner in David's adultery. Three of them were Gentiles. Christ is not only the king of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. We look at the genealogy and we see good and righteous kings in his genealogy. But also there's some very wicked kings in his genealogy. Showing us that both good and evil are monitored and controlled in our world by the Christ. Some exiles are listed. Captives, not free men, but who became free men under the rule of Christ, who emancipated them by his grace. We drew out two lessons. Number one, Jesus' kingdom is one of redeemed sinners. That's what we are. We're redeemed sinners. We read in Hebrews 12, verse 23, To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men, made perfect. We weren't perfect, but we were made perfect. Perfection is what is needed to go to heaven. People don't realize that, but it's in the scriptures. 
And secondly, we learn those redeemed sinners were and are repentant sinners. So their past lifestyle is no longer a part of who they are today, at least not willingly. We looked at the power of the king to transform wicked people into saints. And many of you sitting here today know that experience, praise the Lord. Wicked people turned into saints. Well, today's study deals with a rather disconcerting and troubling period of Joseph and Mary's engagement. I'm calling it a troubling engagement. As we come to our study, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word, the word of God that tells it like it is. You don't candy coat what reality is. People need to understand that, that you are true to the facts. Even if some of the facts are rather dark and disconcerting. May you bless our study to this day. Teach us of the importance of being true to the truth regardless of what it is. I pray for our sister Clara May in particular. Can't be with us today. We pray that you'll bless her with your healing power and restore her to us in Christ's name. Amen. Our subject today talks about Mary and Joseph and their troubling engagement. What was troubling about their engagement? Well, Mary was with child before she and Joseph were married. That's pretty troubling. Think of our day, still not acceptable, though more and more dismissed in our day because of the promiscuity of our age. But back then, ooh, you could be stoned to death for this happening prior to your marriage. The genealogy we studied last week was Joseph's. So the emphasis of Matthew's account in verse 18 is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Those are his words. And in particular, how this relates to Joseph was listed as the last person in the royal dynasty of the Messiah, verse 16 of our text. He's listed as the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called to Christ. It's interesting that an emphasis in Matthew's gospel is on begat the role in reproduction of men. Verse 16, Mary is identified as the mother of Jesus, but nothing is said of Joseph as the father who begat Jesus. This begat business stops with him. Now, instead he is identified as the husband of Mary. 
Oh, is this a mistake? Has Matthew missed something here? No, it is not a mistake. Despite the human penman God used to write this historical account, namely Matthew, all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, which includes this text in Matthew. And it is with Matthew as with Peter, as it says in his own contribution to the biblical history, above all, writes Peter, you must understand no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Carried along. It's a Greek word, pharaoh. It means, it's, it's a ship term, meaning buoyed up by the waves of the sea. Or of sails ballooned out and filled by the wind, propelling the ship along. Both images, I think, are helpful. God's prophets did not write down their own thoughts and ideas. And when recording their prophecies, their histories, no, they were buoyed up, that is sustained, supported, propelled forward in their direction by none other than the Holy Spirit of God. The end product then is not a Bible containing the thoughts and conclusions of sinful men but a Bible whose pages are God-breathed, hence a record of God's thoughts, God's analysis, God's conclusions, which because of the nature of God himself is not subject to lies or deception or false statements. Okay, then what does God want us to know about Mary? This young lady who's engaged to Joseph in this royal line. Verse 18. Before they came together, that is, before they had marital relations, she was found to be with child. We would say she was obviously pregnant. Showing, in other words. But what was not obvious was how she became pregnant. If because we understand the biological process of reproduction, we conclude that Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph, that she has been with another man, our conclusion would be wrong. Wrong. This is what Joseph concluded in his ignorance, and he also concluded that the only justifiable recourse for him to take was to divorce Mary, though he chose to do it, verse 19, quietly, quietly. That is, without fanfare, without public trial, without exposure to public censure. It's because he loved her. We don't normally think of all of this with Joseph in the mix, but he loves Mary. He doesn't want to see her disgraced. He doesn't want to see her name besmirched in the community. Now Mary knew what had happened to her, but Joseph didn't know that. 
It was to Mary that the angel Gabriel appeared and announced, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asks, the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Luke 1, verse 30 and following. Why didn't Mary tell Joseph about this? I want you to think about this. You're a young girl, a teenager somewhere between age 15 and 18. You're engaged to be married. But before your vows are taken, it becomes obvious that you're pregnant. And your only explanation is, well, God overpowered me by his spirit. Yeah, right. That's about as believable as pigs fly. Even though Joseph loves Mary enough to divorce her privately, to avoid any kind of scandal publicly, he's not about to accept Mary's pregnancy as an act of God. I mean, come on. Would you? You know you would not. So Mary keeps the matter to herself, bearing the brunt of false accusations if need be, relying on God to work things out in his good time, having faith that God would somehow vindicate her. Does this not tell you something of her quality? But this is a very troubling engagement, to say the least. Joseph is in the dark. Mary is with child, and he thinks that she has been unfaithful to him. And with that conclusion, his plan is to divorce her her quietly, to avoid exposing Mary to public disgrace. Verse 19. That tells me how much he loved her. Not many men would think of doing that. What would have happened had he not done that? Do you know what they did to people that were pregnant outside of marriage back in this day? Well, you didn't last too long. They stoned you to death. According to the law. You can read about it in the Old Testament. But he chose not to expose her. And because of that reason, and because of God's grace, Joseph was brought up to speed on Mary's pregnancy, brought up to speed by divine intervention. Can you hear Joseph arguing with himself what to do? 
How could this happen to me? My bride-to-be has been unfaithful to me. She's carrying another man's child. What do I do now? If I go ahead and marry her, what will that do to our relationship? How am I supposed to love another man's child? How can I forget Mary's immorality and go on with life as though none of this ever happened? Questions, questions, questions. There is a psychological and mental pain, brethren, which results from betrayal. If you've never been betrayed, then maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But if your trust and fidelity has been betrayed by another, it's not too difficult to grasp. The mental anguish is acute and it is unnerving. you will begin to self-analyze. What did I ever do to deserve this? How could so-and-so do this to me? What am I supposed to do now? How do I relate hereafter in this betrayal? Likely Joseph wrestled with all these questions and more. And he had pretty much concluded that Mary was culpable of his worst assumptions because he had already decided on a course of actions he would divorce her. Quietly, yes. In a private bill of divorcement, yes. Avoiding public disgrace and scandal, most definitely. But in the end, the result would be the same. The marriage engagement would be broken. You see, the engagement was just as binding as the I do that is said in the marriage vow. Mary would go her way. Joseph would go his way. There would be no marriage. Now, while all of this is in motion, and it appears that this is the only recourse for what Joseph discovered about his fiancée, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, verse 20, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means in Greek, Savior. Because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 20, 21. So God steps in where Mary's explanation would have failed. And he tells Joseph what Mary has known all along, namely, that her child is of God's doing by his Holy Spirit. Thus she has not been promiscuous regardless of how things look. God's son is in her womb, and therefore Joseph need not think of her as a promiscuous woman and her child as illegitimate. This is too fantastical to believe. Why then would Joseph buy this? 
I mean, the explanation is off the wall. It defies logic. It denies basic biology. No one in their right mind is going to believe this. And what is Matthew expecting to accomplish with this fictional explanation that is so absurd? Let me tell you, Joseph does not think that this is fiction. Why not? Two reasons. Joseph knew that one of the ways in which God revealed his will and plan to his believing people was through dreams. Think about when Job was feeling blue because God did not seem to be answering his inquiries. His friend Elihu told him, hey, God does speak now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when a, in a deep sleep falls on men as they slumber on their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with his warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Job 33, verse 14 and following. That was very much the case with King Abimelech, you remember. The life of Abimelech was king of the Philistines. He conscripted Sarah into his serum, not knowing that she was Abraham's wife. But we read, God came to Abimelech in a dream one night, in a dream one night, and said to him, you're as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she's a married woman, Genesis 20, verse 3. That gave Abimelech the chance to set things right by returning Sarah, which you know historically he did. Jacob's son Joseph, the namesake of the same Joseph that's in our text this morning, had two dreams, one of which indicated that he would become a great ruler And all his brothers would bow down to him and serve him. Genesis 37. You can read about it. Well, his brothers hated him because of that dream. And they sold him into Egyptian slavery, where in time Joseph was elevated to vice-regent of all of Egypt. In the aftermath, he ruled over his brothers, and he was used by God to spare their lives in the severe famine which plagued the region during that time. So the first reason Joseph, the Joseph of our text, believes the dream that he had explaining Mary's condition is because there was a history of God using dreams to communicate his word his people, to his people, his will to his people, which Joseph knew all too well. The second reason is that Joseph believed that this report from the angel was not fiction. I mean, there was a prophecy in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, which predicted the very circumstances Joseph was being made aware of. You'll find it in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet 
the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph knew his Bible. He recognized that prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14. Suddenly, the cloud was lifted from his mind, and he realized that Mary, his intended, was still a virgin, though with child. Evidence enough that her son was not the product of infidelity with another man, but was in fact the child God promised through Isaiah the prophet. Here's a question. Can God fertilize a woman's ovum without male sperm? Mary wondered the same thing. And Gabriel, the emissary from God, explained, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, here's the conclusion, So, the Holy One to be born will be called... Joseph's son, no. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1, verse 35 and following. By the way, the introduction of this statement about Elizabeth is to assure Joseph that God was already doing the miraculous. Elizabeth was an old lady well past the years for having children. And he learns, oh, wait a minute. She's pregnant? uh, Elizabeth is going to have a baby? It was something to comfort his heart and help him to conclude, if God can do that with Elizabeth, this old woman... He can do this with Mary, a young virgin. What happened? Well, Joseph had quick compliance to the message of God's dream. I love this. What was the essential message of God in the dream? Verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because... Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God cuts people some slack for what they don't know. It happened in the account of Abimelech. Abimelech pleaded his case with God that he did not know Sarah was Abraham's wife when he took her into his harem and God agreed. That such was the case. And he responded, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, and so I kept you from sinning against me. Genesis 20, verse 6. I know, I know, I know. 
But once we're informed, brethren, once God has made his will clear, there's no safety in ignorance anymore. And so God continued to Abimelech. Now, he said to Abimelech, return the man's wife, but if you don't return her, you may be sure that you and all that belongs to you will die. You know, knowledge brings with it an obligation to act upon the truth that's been revealed. And if this is true of a pagan king like Abimelech, how much more with those of us who are God's people claim to order our lives by faith in God's word? So we read verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Quick compliance, just like that. Not like Gideon, I might remind you, who, in order to determine the will of God, put out a fleece, what, how many times? Well, Lord, let the frost be on, well, then, then no frost the next day, and then frost again, and back and forth he went, trying to determine whether he was going to obey or not. How many times have we dragged our feet reasoning? Oh, I wonder what God wants me to do in this situation. Not quite sure when we know what we're to do and or not to do because it's been revealed in the scriptures. We're lazy or we're fearful or slow to respond because we just don't want to do what we know we should. God's work sometimes languishes in this process. Well, Joseph complied quickly. He woke from the dream. He married Mary pronto. He also did something else. Verse 25. He had no union with her, and that is no sexual relations, until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Where do we find God commanding Joseph not to be intimate with his wife Mary? Nowhere. I can't find it. He used his brain. And he came up with this on his own. He knew that in due course the public would think of Jesus as his son. So he took the necessary steps to preserve the integrity of Mary and the true identity of Jesus as God's son. You know, God does allow us to put two and two together by utilizing our brains to think through problems and arrive at godly solutions. This one little statement at the end of this chapter squelches forever any notion that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. That's ridiculous. 
I thank God for thinking men. And under inspiration, Matthew included that little statement in his account. Now, what lessons do we learn from this very, very stormy engagement? Number one, God's word records the truth. Even the truth lends itself to misunderstanding and distortion. Tell the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I mean, if you were writing a history of God's dealings with men, would you have included that the mother of the Savior was pregnant with child before she was married? What a bombshell to drop. Better keep that. Hush, hush. People don't need to know that, Matthew. What's the matter with you? Have you not read the proverb which says a prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, but the heart of a fool blurts out folly? Proverbs 12, verse 23. Are you playing the fool, Matthew? Shouldn't that be hush-hush? It is quite true in retrospect that the public of Jesus' day, the public of Jesus' day, viewed him as Joseph and Mary's son, They thought they knew his origin. Matthew 13. Coming to his own hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogues, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his own hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Matthew 13, verse 54 and following. Had they done just a little investigation, they would have discovered that Jesus was not a native-born Nazarene, but had been born in Bethlehem as prophesied as the city of Israel's coming king, Micah 5, verse 2. Oh, but they knew, they knew. Oh, it got worse. It leaked out as often the case with gossips and busybodies, that Mary was with child before she married Joseph. So in the heat of the debate, when the Pharisees were claiming God as their father, they said to Jesus, We are not illegitimate children. But we know you are. They didn't say that. They're implying that. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. John 8, verse 4. Implication. We're not born of fornication, but we know you are. Well, they knew nothing of the sort. 
They had succumbed to the local gossip. That's what had happened. You say, well, what's your point, Pastor? My point is this. God does not shrink from telling the truth. Mary being pregnant with Jesus before marriage to Joseph, she does not shrink from that simply because the truth can be misunderstood and distorted. What men do with the truth that God gives them, they alone are responsible for. We do not shy away from declaring God's word because people mock or they laugh or they portray us and God as fools. The Bible has an indictment on them. It is this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And his conclusion, all have turned aside They have together become corrupt. The one thing they have in common is corruption. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn those who devour my people as many bread and who do not call on the Lord? Psalm 14, the first four verses. Brethren, we are to proclaim the truth of the gospel even if it sounds fanciful and fictitious to the man of the street. For it is as Paul declared, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. And God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 21. Another lesson here is that don't be quick to make a judgment call based on your observations. I mean, I think initially Joseph was guilty of this with Mary. Verse 18, she was found to be with child. How did he know that? Well, he had eyes, didn't he? He could see that her physique was a little more bulging than usual. He put two and two together, concluded that she was pregnant, which was true. But then he did something else. He extrapolated from his observation that to be pregnant... She had proved herself promiscuous with another man. He made an erroneous judgment based on his observations. We shouldn't do that. I did this one time years ago. I was interviewing a young lady as a possible tenant for an apartment that I had back in Pennsylvania. And she was wearing one of those... um, I call them uh, baby doll blouses. They're kind of balloony type things. Back then they were the big rage over her blue jeans. And I thought she was an unwed mother looking to rent a place for herself and her unborn child. 
well, I'm so glad I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> because in the course of our conversation, I figured out that she was not pregnant at all, but simply wanted to be out of her own, out on her own, excuse me, living away from her mom and dad, wanted to have her own apartment and so forth. But I came that close to putting my foot in my mouth by asking, when's your baby due? <laughs> Shut my mouth. That would have been terribly embarrassing and greatly humiliating. Brethren, what you see, what you hear is not always identical to the truth. Learn that observations can lead to wrong conclusions. Take time to ask questions for clarification. Solomon said, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Hmm. Patience is better than pride. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8. Paul says, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 2. Be cautious. Don't make rash decisions. And then secondly, sometimes people cannot learn from your explanations. God will just have to intervene. I like this. Mary never tried to tell Joseph how she had become pregnant. Why not? Because in her case, the truth seemed like a fantastical lie to explain away her promiscuity. You know, much of the gospel is like that when talking to sinners whose understanding of spiritual things is zero. Jesus cautions us in our witness. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then they're going to turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7, verse 6. That, that requires discernment then, doesn't it? In his own ministry, Jesus, the author of truth, was locked into a theological battle with the Pharisees who claimed Abraham as their spiritual father. And his response was, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. The only father we have is God himself, was their answer. And Jesus said to them, well, if God were your father, <laughs> you would love me. For I have come down from, my, I'm, for I came from, my God, from God and not, I am not here on my own. I have come because he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, 
not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John 8, verse 39 and following. Did you know that unbelievers have a spiritual father? They do. They have a spiritual father just as we. Only their instructor, their mentor, is the devil of whom Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. It will take the almighty power of God to remove the blinders to grant them sight. God did this with me. God did this with you if you're a believer here this morning. So yes, witness, pray that God will shine through the hard spiritual cataracts. Otherwise your effort to shine forth the gospel light will meet with continued darkness, continued resistance. Finally, Mary's child is aptly named Jesus. It's the Greek word for Savior. Verse 21. Because he will save his people from their sins. Well, what about those blind eyes and those deaf ears of which Paul just told us? What about those dogs and pigs that Jesus describes who disdain the gospel and will cause them to attack you for telling them the truth? What about that? Paul says the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, then what are we to do? We do not preach ourselves, Paul goes on. But Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's the Genesis account of creation. The God who said that made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 and following. Brethren, you and I have no ability to change a person's heart. No ability to open their spiritual eyes. No ability to open their deaf ears. But God does. God does. His all-surpassing power was made real to us when God made his light shine in our hearts so that we could see, so that we could believe. That's the germ seed of salvation. Paul, as Jesus' spokesman, makes this promise. He says, the word is near you. 
It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we're proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice these universal terms. Anyone, all, everyone who calls will be saved. Romans 10, verse 8 and follow. Jesus died at Calvary and spilled his blood to seal those promises. May I say, you have God's word on it. Not this preacher's. You have God's word on it. He makes you a promise. Anyone, all who call, everyone who comes. That could be you this morning, if you're not already his child. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you. We praise you today. That salvation, like Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. I can't effect it. Can't bring it about. No preacher can. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to grant life to dead people. That's the problem. Their spirit is dead. Not just eventually their flesh, but their spirit is dead. They have a nature which is against accepting the things of God. And Satan plays on that. He feeds that nature. He makes the gospel look foolish. Too simplistic. Not simplistic at all when you think about the great cost to God in the death of his son. He moved heaven and earth to save his people. And we praise you for that today. Lord, save whom you will today. Bring your salvation to one, to two, to three, to as many who are lost today. Bring them to surrender. Grant them faith that they don't have and repentance that they don't have for your glory and their good. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn from the hymnal number 151. Let's stand as we sing 151.
The whole incarnation of Jesus, God taking on flesh and blood, a flesh and blood body. God is spirit, the Bible says. So why would he take on a flesh and body spirit? Because spirits can't die, that's why. But a flesh and body can. And so he took on a flesh and body in the person of his son Jesus. Because he had something in mind that's called the cross. Death and burial and an open grave resurrection. He had salvation in mind. He had you in mind if you're already one of his children. And if you're not, you can be today through repentance and faith. May God so grant that to you. Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. We don't have to do anything to be saved you've done it all we've asked we are asked and indeed commanded in the scripture to believe what you've written in the scripture is that too much to ask of sinners to believe God when he speaks to take him as his word when he's done so much and historically the whole world knows the coming of Christ that he was a real person that it was a real cross a real death a real burial a real resurrection that never did find his body he was risen from the grave and ascended to glory and he's coming again and when he comes we had best be his children I pray that you will do that for us today if we do not know you Bless and honor the truth. Grant us the faith we don't have, the repentance we don't have. That you will make us your children today if we are not. For your glory, because you are glorified at any time, even one soul comes to know you as Savior. The angels rejoice over that one soul, the scripture says. That's how precious God views his people. May we grasp those truths. In Jesus' name, we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen. As is our tradition, we have a small gift for a pastor uh, around Christmas time in appreciation for all that he does. Um, I especially appreciate the fact that um, he's continuing to serve Christ and ministering to us here at Thornville under, under difficult circumstances. So uh, we, we appreciate it, Pastor. Here's your gift. Thank and you. And we love you, and God bless you in the coming year. And Jared? Uh, well...
<laughs> Jared is the resident fireman. He runs around here putting out fires. He's hopping, and uh, we appreciate all that you do and kind of keep the wheels spinning around here. So thank you very much. We love you and your family, and we pray that God will also bless you and your family in the coming year. So bless us all. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks, everybody.